scramble for Africa series. Um, Dave Power is here with me as always. Uh, and today we're still we haven't we haven't started into the scramble yet. We talked about um, we talked about the slave trade. Um, we focused on the west coast of Africa, the Gold Coast, um, before the scramble. A lot of the effects of the scramble for Africa, but I we I, I want to stay pre-scramble for a little bit longer. I want to make sure we're completely ready before we get into it. And so I kind of wanted to do a tour of um, African states uh, that were either trying to resist or collaborating or both. In some cases, <laughs> the same states were resisting and collaborating um, at different periods. Sometimes, some cases, the same rulers. Yeah. And I think this is perfectly fair to do an episode on this because we neglected it so badly when we did the triangular trade mm -hmm. back in uh, whenever it was. So just to start with Rodney again, because most of this material again is in Rodney. Uh, Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, uh, a classic. And Dave, you looked up Walter Rodney, huh? The, For those of our listeners who don't know who he is or anything about him, I would say just do a quick search. You will be quite surprised at his uh, life and yeah. not, uh, death anyway. That struck me too. Not an armchair. <laughs> not an armchair theorist. Walter Rodney was not. No. Um, so here's one long quote from him. Uh, he says, Many African rulers sought a European alliance to deal with their own African neighbor with whom they were in conflict. Few of those rulers appreciated the implications of their actions. They could not know that Europeans had come to stay permanently. They could not know that Europeans were out to conquer not some but all Africans. This partial and inadequate view of the world was itself a testimony of African underdevelopment relative to Europe, which in the 19th century was self-confidently seeking dominion in every part of the globe. So here he's he's almost talking about develop because a lot of the book uh, at the beginning of the book he talks about what he means by development um, and underdevelopment. And so here he's saying that even the idea of not seeing um, the bigger picture at work is a form of underdevelopment. Okay. What do you I, think? I I love the fact that you could substitute. Indian for African, and it's yeah. just as true. Yeah, and and the word Indian could mean <laughs> in first indigenous in North America in terms of the Indian American Indian Wars or Indian kingdoms uh, in the British as the British Empire was taking over. Right, and and here's where I half agree with Rodney and half don't. It's just this one one point: uh, they could not know that Europeans were out to conquer not some. <clears throat> but all Africans. Mm -hmm. uh, first, I think he's jumping the gun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as we showed in a previous episode, the balance of uh, military power or, or leverage was not all one way in favor of the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe for a second that they had designs on conquering the entire continent. Not until we get to the scramble. So pre-scramble, I don't think this applies. However, I think that he's on the edge of something here. How much information do Africans have about these European powers? 
we know, we know from the from the other viewpoint, you know, that Europeans are calling Africa the dark continent, and it's not entirely a reference to skin color. It's it's a map, have, yeah. Like they have a map, and they have a map of the coast, but the interior they don't know. Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah. Uh, we, we'll get to explorers, I think, in the next episode. Mm -hmm. But I, there, there's a certain level of uh, mutual ignorance working yeah. on both sides. You could say it's an intelligence failure, even. <laughs> well, I'd say a failure, except that they weren't really thinking in those yeah. terms, like gathering intelligence. So it goes back. So if we're going to do a little tour of African resistance to uh, the slave trade, um, we go back to Rodney and, and probably the first person, uh, and we've mentioned this in very early episodes of this program, probably back in 2019, but there's a King Afonso of the Congo Kingdom. And the Congo Kingdom is not in the what's today the the Republic of Congo or the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's in what's today Angola, uh, interestingly. But King Afonso of Congo, he wrote famously wrote a, a lot of letters to the King of Portugal, kind of appealing to them to stop, um, you know, as one Christian to another, to please stop uh, the slave trade. Um, he was, again, he, he said this as he was trading slaves and participating, but he realized that it was, um, it was not a matter of, it was not what he thought. The Portuguese wanted something that he did not think uh, they wanted. He, he didn't realize that it was like going to be like a vacuuming up of his population. He thought it was like a trade you know, a captive here for some fancy bauble there. Um, and it was starting to transform society. And he saw that and wrote letters, but obviously. I don't was... know much about the uh, <clears throat> the status of slavery in, in his kingdom in the Congo, but I do know that in some places on the West Coast of Africa, the, the Gold Coast and the Slave Coast, slavery existed before the Europeans got there. So when the Europeans arrived and said, you know, can we buy some of your slaves? Sure, I got a couple of, you know, slaves that I keep around for as servants, more for prestige than anything else. And mm -hmm. uh, these two are getting a little old, so you can have them if you want. But that's not what the Europeans want. Yeah. We don't want your old slaves, and we're not looking for prestige servants either. He wrote uh, in 1526, he wrote, you know, we cannot reckon how great the damage is since the mentioned merchants are taking every day our natives, sons of the land, the sons of our noblemen and vassals and our relatives because the thieves and men of bad conscience grab them wishing to have the things and wares of this kingdom, which they are ambitious of. They grab them and get them to be sold. Uh, you should, your highness should not agree with this, <laughs> nor accept it as in your service. Um so he's just, and he writes a, yeah, a series of these getting more and more desperate. But uh, strongly worded letters are not quite enough to stop no. the slave trade. Um, and similarly, the king of Benin, I guess, uh, against probably 17th century, um, he was willing to sell female prisoners of war, but their practice was to, when you capture a male prisoner of war, was to assimilate that person into your society um and so he was very reluctant to sell male prisoners of war and mm -hmm. and also recognized the de the way it was destabilizing his kingdom 
we have another Angola, you know, present day Angola, uh, Queen Nzinga. And Queen Nzinga is also uh, an interesting character because alternating between participating in the slave trade, fighting uh, the Portuguese, uh, and then eventually kind of capitulating. And she had a long career. I guess she was the monarch for almost 30 years. Um, but really, you know, she's the one who ultimately, when she loses, is the when the Portuguese are pretty much fully established. So Rodney, Rodney writes... Uh, this he writes around the forts of Luanda and Benguela in Angola and Lourenço Marques and Beira in Mozambique. There grew up communities of uh, Africans, mulattoes, and even Indians who helped pacify large areas for the Portuguese after the Berlin Conference. So these are kind of towns that's that come to depend on this economy. There's an amazing story uh, in the Republic of Guinea. Is Guinea's on the Gold Coast, right? Considered Close by, yeah. Yeah, and that is this why they call they called money gold guineas. Yep, there was so much gold coming from the west coast of Africa that they were minting coins back in London, and they called them guineas. Yeah. So, a pretty amazing character, Tomba of Baga. Uh, which is the present-day Republic of Guinea. So Captain Tomba, um, and this comes from, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, a history written in John Atkins, Surgeon in the Royal Navy, a voyage <laughs> to Guinea, Brazil, and the West Indies on the Swallow and Weymouth. So the the titles titles back then were great, eh, Dave? They, mm. they just told you exactly what was what was in the book. Um, so this guy, Tomba, he fought uh, against um, slavers. He, he was trying to make an alliance uh, with other African uh, leaders in Guinea to stop the traffic. Um, they allied with, I guess, the Portuguese uh, or the Dutch, maybe. I think it might have been the Dutch um, or the English. Anyway, he they allied with the Europeans. Um and he was defeated and enslaved himself. So here's somebody who's trying to, he's a, he's a nobleman or a leader who was trying to uh, stop the slave trade, and he gets defeated in battle and enslaved and sent to Europe on a slave ship where, what, is, what does he do? <laughs> he leads a slave rebellion on the ship, um, and uh, they try to take the ship over, and so he's, uh, he's, he's killed. Basically, he goes down fighting. Um, yeah, goes down fighting. Um, there's also Agaja Trudeau, T-R-U-D-O, <laughs> not to be confused with present-day uh, Canadian mm -hmm. politicians. Agaja Trudeau, king of Dahomey, he uh, attacked uh, forts and slave camps. Um, Dahomey is also on this west coast we talked about last uh, last episode. Um and he uh, he had some success, but he basically gave in uh, by 1730. You have a great expression here. <laughs> so so he attacks the forts and the slave camps, but ends up falling back in line in 1730. And it hmm. makes me wonder, okay, why? What happened? I think he just militarily lost, I think. Well, 
there's a whole bunch of possibilities in in these two little sentences. Okay, why was he attacking the forts? Um, was he a committed abolitionist, or was he just not getting his share of the profits? I'm going to have to look this guy up. I'm it, looking at it now. So he, um, <clears throat> 17, he's significant. He expanded the kingdom. He came into contact. He opposed the Dutch and largely excluded them from trade along the coast. All right. Um, created uh, direct officers to manage contacts with other European powers. Right. So I don't want to trade with the Dutch, but I'm quite happy trading with the English and the French, something like that. Agaja's motivations and his involvement in the slave trade have been a topic for debate among historians, centers around his conquest of Alada and Wida, and observed dis- decrease in the slave trade in the area after this conquest, complicating attempts to discern motivation is that his administration ended by creating significant infrastructure for the slave trade and participated in it during the last few years of his reign. So again, this is uh, Atkins is the source, the same source about uh, Tomba. Um, okay, we'll go a little further because I think that might <clears throat> might answer a little bit. Uh He's yeah, so he sends an ambassador to London, um, and and uh, and one of the people he sends, so he's sending people to recruit other people. And so, one uh, English person writes, If any tailor, carpenter, smith, or any sort of white man that is free be willing to come here, he will find very good uh, encouragement. Um, a later king asks for a firearms factory. Um, in 1804, and I just, some of these dates really uh, are really interesting to me because 1804 is also the year that Haiti, the Haitian Revolution is won. Mm-hmm. So there are things going on with slavery on different sides of the <laughs> ocean, let's say. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it might seem a bit, I don't know, early or, or premature or something. <clears throat> Uh, for King An- Ananzo- Anandozan in Dahomey in uh, 17- in 1804 to be asking for this. But on the other hand, the Haitians had already just won their uh, freedom from slavery with uh, firearms and machetes and whatever else they could get their hands on. Um, so he says, uh, I don't know who said this, maybe An- An- Anandozan himself, he who makes the powder wins the war. Um, Receptive. Yeah. Uh, so Rodney says about this. He's commenting on this about how it, uh, Anand, Adan Adandozan was unrealistic. He says, of course, Europeans were fully aware that their arms technology was decisive, and there was not the slightest chance they would have agreed to teach Africans to make firearms and ammunition. Okay. So, so he, here we go again. I'm I'm halfway with Rodney. So going back to uh, Agaja Trudeau, I, he's pretty smart. He wants to bring in European craftsmen, and he wants to find people to make gunpowder for him. Very smart. That is, of course, because he has to buy those things from the Dutch and the English and the French, and he realizes that this is a, <clears throat> well, a monopoly situation, and I'm trying to find a way around it. Very clever, very forward thinking. Um, how's he going to get the money to pay for this? Yeah. Selling slaves. Yeah. And what is the long-term goal? Mm. 
we mentioned in the uh, triangular trade episode any any african ruler who opposes the slave trade is you know interfering with business you you have to find a way around that and usually what you do is you give a discount or even free weapons to his neighbors so that they can crush his kingdom and of course in doing so provide you with a whole bunch more slaves but uh, back to what rodney said so uh, there was not the slightest chance that they would have agreed to teach Africans to make firearms and ammunition. I could not agree more. Hmm. But Europeans were fully aware that their arms technology was decisive. I disagree. It was not. Right. Uh, we, we, in our episode on the Gold Coast in, in Ghana, the Ashanti and the Fanti, the English did not have a decisive arms advantage. To me, this is more like a business decision. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I mean, was... Rodney Rodney talks about development, right? Like, he, it's 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 an interesting question because on the one hand, yeah, arms is decisive, but on the other hand, you know, he does say elsewhere that it's like the the navigation, the ability to, you know, mainly the the ability to, ha- you know, the presence of the navy the the ships right the merchant ships and the things they right. can do uh the distances they can travel is yep is more important than than the firearms that, at least at this stage purely on the coast they cannot yeah. penetrate inland yeah at, at this point right. no to me it's more like that old saying about you know sell a man fish he can eat today but teach him give mm-hmm. him a fishing rod and he can eat forever mm-hmm so we're we're going to sell you all the fish you want, but we're not teaching you how to get them. Right. Right. Or I'll sell you all the Kentucky fried chicken that you want, but you're not getting the recipe. Right. So forget, forget that. The 11 herbs and spices. Well, whatever it is. <laughs> so Dahomey itself, this is the, um, I, I guess it's Ghana today. What? We, I think we answered this before. Yeah. Forgotten. Um, it's it was an offshoot of the Alada state of the Aja people in the 1400s, and another similar state was this Waida W H Y D A H. So um, all of them had made deals with European slave, uh, you know, slave powers, but Dahomey itself became kind of a raider state. So they their economy started to be based on the war economy of uh, going and getting slaves from other states, capturing people. Um, so the Europeans actually called it the Black Sparta. Um, this was all part of a bigger uh, kingdom called Oyo, but um, Oyo was uh, a kingdom to which Dahomey paid tribute, but afterwards Dahomey became the, the big power in the region. Um, and then, of course, there are the women soldiers, the so-called Amazons of Dahomey. There were 5,000 of these female soldiers uh, by 1845, and that's out of 15,000 in the army. So one-third of the soldiers were um, were Amazons. Um, they did a census. They had diplomatic protocols, and Dahomey had a state-sponsored artist class. This is, these are all just notes that Rodney makes about how, you know, how advanced the states were in in various stages. Um, in 1850, there's a King Gezo who ruled between 1818 and 1857. 
and he's trying to reform, like you were saying, uh, get out of the slave business. He's trying to get into the palm oil business. Um, and Rodney again says, it soon became clear that Europeans were not bent on seeing Dahomey reemerge as a strong state, but were rather creating excuses and the subjective conditions to justify their proposed colonization of the people of Dahomey. Under these circumstances, the last Dahomeyan monarch, Glele, fell back on his capital at Abome and pursued the policies which he considered most consistent with the dignity and independence of Dahomey. He raided Abeokuta, which contained converts who were already British-protected persons. He told the French to get the hell out of Porto Novo, and he generally resisted until defeated militarily by the French in 1889. Hmm. Um, King Gezo, I guess, was... Uh, and was king until 1857. He was famous in Europe. I do not know much about Glele, and I think that the two of them are very different. Hmm. If he's kicking the French out of Porto Novo, and this is 1889, that, that's that's very different. Oh, but that's not Gezo, that's Glele. Yeah, Glele. yeah, but you mentioned the oil before. So hmm. the oil empire, or, or the kingdom of oil, uh, big slave trading empire built on guns mm-hmm. conquest with guns and of course to get more guns you need more slaves so you get into this cycle where you win a war sell the slaves get more guns conquer somebody else and then they reached a point where they're either sated or the king just says okay that's enough you know mm-hmm. we've we've done enough conquest and slave trading and of course the europeans are not going to let you stop Right. It's again, it's the business relationship. So you tell them, well, we don't need any more of that stuff. We're not going to trade slaves anymore. Yeah. So now that's when we go to your tributary, King Gezo of Dahomey, and we go, hey, and we'll give him lots of free weapons and a discount on gunpowder so that he can overthrow Oyo. If they're finished slave trading, then they're finished. That's the European attitude. So Gezo is in one of these Flashman novels? Um, Flash for Freedom? He is. Yeah. Or, well, or, or his predecessor. Yeah, one of them. <laughs> now, when he gets to the point where he wants to, slop, to, to stop slave trading, yeah. that's, that's interesting. <laughs> um, so I guess we, we're going to talk a lot more about Abyssinia or Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia didn't have a trade in captives. Um, the Portuguese arrived in 1520. Uh, the, the emperor at that time, Emperor Lebna Dengel, he writes to the Portuguese kings and to the Pope asking for industrial technology. <laughs> we have a lot more to say about Ethiopia um, and, or, and or, or, or Abyssinia, as you like, uh, during the scramble. So stay tuned for that one because it's a pretty good one pretty it's an outlier let's just let's just say um asante another one of the west coast kingdoms we have uh another would-be modernizer opoku ware who was king from 1720 to 1750 um and he tries to get factories and distilleries uh to i don't think he has much success um oh, no. <laughs> uh and and then 
they they are fighting back um, against colonization until the 1870s, and they have a big battle against the British um, at that time. So on the eve, on the eve, of, this is quoting Rodney, on the eve of colonialism, a substantial proportion of Asante society was made up of Odonko Ba, the descendants of one-time captives who were the laboring population on the land. So they're defeated in 1874. Uh, by the British. When the British defeated Asante in 1874, they had in their forces African troops from the coastal towns around the Gold Coast forts. Those Africans had been in contact with Europeans for so long that from the 17th century, they identified themselves as Dutch, Danish, or English, depending upon whose fort gave them employment. They had fought battles for one European against another, and by the late 19th century, it was an easy matter to get them to fight against fellow Africans on behalf of the conquering colonial power of Britain. So again, very similar story to India or uh, the North American indigenous uh, against the U.S. Um, there's also Oyo we've mentioned. Uh, they kept clear of slave trading until the 1700s. Uh, controlling most of what is now Western Nigeria and Dahomey. Um, they got horses from the north. Uh, they were famous for cloth, um, and they began to export captives from the 1800s. Uh, their downfall was in 1830. Um, and they in the, in the wake of Oyo, there was several other states, New Oyo, Ibadan, Ajaye, Abeokuta, and Ijebu. Again, um, trying to showcase development and the possibilities had uh, colonization not happened is why Rodney has this quote. Uh, European visitors to Yoruba land in the middle of the 19th century could still admire the level of its material culture, along with the highly colorful and impressive aspects of its non-material culture, such as the annual yam festivals and the ritual of the religious cult of Shango, Ogboni, and others. Um, so they were trying to get firearms as well. Uh, but the British um, <laughs> got to colonize them first. Uh, he Rodney again points out, the Yoruba states of Ibadan, Abeokuta, and Ajaye had populations of up to 100,000 citizens, as large as mo most of the city-states, principalities, and palatinates of feudal Germany. Um, this is Rodney again? Yeah. Okay. I'm just not sure about his expression you know the british got in there first and colonized them because they they didn't well they were I mean, yeah yes they uh sold them weapons or refused to sell them weapons and sold weapons to their neighbors and then bought the slaves that resulted from these wars but it's not uh direct control You're right right yeah. not at this time but i no, guess yeah. no I, I guess I was I, I was jumping ahead to scramble because this becomes this becomes a British colony, right? Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I I'm just not sure that you can look into the future and say, well, the, everybody could see this coming or no, this no. was inevitable because I don't I don't feel that way about it. All right. So Central Africa and East Africa, we have uh, Bunyoro Kitara in East Africa, the Bachwezi dynasty. Um, so this is. Uganda is what's to become Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and northeastern Tanzania. That's pretty big. Yeah. And in fact, they they had uh, such a high level of development, to use um, 
to use Rodney's scheme, uh, that the European racists couldn't couldn't compute. So um, they invented this thing called the Hamitic hypothesis. So basically, we I think we're going to talk about that. Oh my god! Well. You mean cultural transference? No, no, ham like the Bible. So these are not um, black people; they're yeah, yeah, yeah. children of ham. No, no, that's what I mean. Like once once you discover a a civilization where you didn't expect to find one, and they're far too advanced, you think, well, these people could never have invented this by themselves. Obviously, somebody like the Mayans. Obviously, somebody from Egypt traveled here and taught them how to build pyramids. Yeah, or somebody from space. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's later. That's nineteen seventies. Oh my gosh. So, and the other, the other thing is, I guess, uh, around here, there's a lot of cattle, um, cattle-based agricultural economy. So they're eat, drinking a lot of milk. They're eating a lot of protein. So they're very tall. The, you know, the cattle herders of central, um, you know, Africa, Rwanda, and Burundi, um, their, their real big height differences based on their diets. Uh, and, uh. Yeah, so, and there's actually, um, in Rwanda and Burundi, they were uh, pretty strong uh, centralized kingdoms, um, and they were not, um, you know, they, they had pretty strong kind of national consciousness because they speak pretty much the same language. Uh, they have the same castes, you know, the Hutu, Tutsi, Twa, um, and they, but they but they were very conscious of like Rwanda as a kingdom and Burundi as another kingdom, so. Uh, that went back to pre-colonial times and colonial. They kept those borders, right? The colon, the Germans and then the British. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, the Belgians, right. I mean. Um, so then we have the Zulu, which is quite a story that we're going to get back to. But of course, uh, Shaka Zulu. Um, I don't think Rodney is is saying this, but he's quoting somebody. Oh, yeah. He's quoting a 19th century uh, what he calls a pulpy biography. Um, so one of these pulpy 19th century biographies says, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Hannibal, Charlemagne, such men as these have arisen periodically throughout the history of the world to blaze a trail of glory that has raised them high above the common level. Such a man was Shaka, perhaps the greatest of them all. So Shaka Zulu was born in 1787 and lived just 40 years. Um, died in 1828, but his his goal was to try to expand his kingdom and conquer. So um, his his successors fought this famous battle with the British, I guess, Isandlwana, mm -hmm. um, in 1876. And they were successful, even though this was way after their peak under Shaka. Yeah. Um, so he said, uh, Rodney says, he thought, Shaka thought that the centralizing political nucleus should achieve military superiority and demonstrate it to other sectors. That would generally lead to peaceful acceptance of the greater political state, or else the dissidents would be thoroughly crushed. Um, so the tactics, he had a standing army, a bureaucracy, um, you know, national kind of education and a national ethos. Um, some military innovations with the length of the spear and the fighting with spears and shields, throwing the spear. Um, and he was successor to a king named Dingiswayo. Dingiswayo made contact with the Portuguese in 1797. Um, he also had made some advances. 
and Shaka took up the mantle. So um, this is an ex- Rodney kind of thinks of this as an example. He says that is development. It is a matter of building upon what is inherited while advancing slowly, provided that no one comes to civilize you. <laughs> Um, Western Sudan, um, we have the Hausa states. I thought Hausa was Nigeria. Maybe it's it was a different name. Interesting. Um, oh yeah, as far at east, it's the same people. Yeah. Wow. Well, what Western Sudan is all sub-Saharan Africa, almost as far as uh, right. Uh, well, not as far as Timbuktu, but. Yeah, certainly northern Nigeria could have been part of that too. So there's, uh, if you look at that map we did in the first episode of pre-Scramble Africa, there's a big state called the Songhai mm-hmm. Empire. And that, uh, when they fall in the 17th, um, there's the Sokoto Caliphate, uh, which arises in the 19th century, centered on this house of land. Um, back west, uh, the Niger Bend, uh, there's a king named Amadou Amadou, who establishes what Rodney calls an Islamic theocracy. There's another Islamic theocracy on the upper Niger uh, by Al-Hajj Omar. Um, Samuri Toure carves out what's called the Mandinga state in the 1880s. Uh, in Zimbabwe, there are, present-day Zimbabwe, there are the Nguni states. Um, Rodney says, Gunhana, the Nguni ruler of Gaza in Mozambique, not the same Gaza, uh, asked for a Swiss missionary doctor and maintained him at his court for several years until the Portuguese conquered his kingdom in 1895. After the Portuguese imposed colonial rule, it was a long time before Africans saw another doctor. Um, Then there's Madagascar, which is like a gigantic island um, off of the African coast. Uh, east on the east side it's on the east side right now i'm doubting myself um and there are several states on madagascar which is huge including the marina kingdom they have rice cattle agriculture uh rodney says the marina kingdom did a great deal to sponsor reading and writing they used their own language and arabic script they welcomed the aid of european missionaries that conscious borrowing from all relevant sources was only possible when they had the freedom to choose Colonization, far from springing from Malagasy needs, actually erected a barrier to the attainment of the modernization in- initiated by the Merino kings in the 1860s and 70s. So that sounds like Hawaii to me, uh, you know, how much the Hawaiian monarchs were into uh, literacy and trying to get um, people to help teach reading. So to summarize, we have just before colonialism, uh, just before colonialism, we've abolished the slave trade, and we'll talk more about the economics of this um, and the consequences. But basically, um, everybody moves into cotton, and the co- these are now, um, you know, they're making cotton for the European powers. Um, the gold uh, has been uh, taken over. So these are just co- his kind of analysis of commodities. Ivory... Um, the trade in ivory is basically under European control uh, as well. Um, but while Rodney notes the military, cultural, and ideological influence of Europe was not particularly 
uh, strong in Africa before colonialism. So he says, most of the few missionaries in places like the Congo, Angola, and Upper Guinea concentrated on blessing Africans as they were about to be launched across the Atlantic into slavery. Um, there are other religions like Christianity, which has indigenous roots in Abyssinia and, of course, Islam. So uh, there is a relationship between uh, the abolition and the emancipation of slavery uh, and uh, colonialism in Africa, which, again, we'll get into in the next episode, I think, the yeah. theory, yeah. Uh, the humanitarianism of it all, how, how, you know, Leopold actually was in Congo to save the Congolese from Arab slavers and so on. Um, so Rodney, and I think we're, we'll we'll have a little debate on this now, but Rodney point Rodney argues that the Arab slave trade was different um, than the African one. So not good, and I think we've said this before, but different. So uh, Rodney says the Arabs had acquired Africans as slaves for centuries, but they were exploited in a feudal context. African slaves in Arab hands became domestics, soldiers, and agricultural serfs. Whatever surplus they produced was not for reinvestment and multiplication of capital as in the West Indian or North American slave systems, but for consumption by the feudal elite. Indeed, slaves were often maintained more for social prestige than for economic benefit. And he says there are exceptions in Zanzibar and Egypt. Zanzibar is, I guess, contemporary Tanzania? It's the island off the coast, yeah. Um, which both had plantation slavery in the 19th century. Uh, But he argues, again, in terms of the world system, that these plantations are actually also producing primarily for European uh, enrichment. Uh, In other words, the cloves, this is Rodney, the cloves, cotton, and dates produced in Zanzibar, Egypt, and Arabia, respectively, previously to colonization, were already going to strengthen European trade and production. Eventually, it was no problem for the capitalist slave traders of Europe to extend political domination over the feudalist Arab slave traders and to use the latter as agents of colonialism in East Africa. Um, okay, so, so I'm I'm two thirds with Rodney on this one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, I agree with him that Arab slavery was different, and and as I said, pre-European. Uh, slavery in West Africa was different also. Uh, The number of slaves you had was a matter of prestige. Their function was not primarily economic. uh, And that changed. That changed when they encountered the Europeans. Where I disagree with Rodney is when he says that, uh, you know, East African or Arab slavery in East Africa came to serve the capitalist economy. Uh, The cloves, cotton, and dates produced in Zanzibar, Egypt, and Arabia were going to strengthen European trade and production. So my first reaction is, really? Cloves and dates? Cotton, sure. Of course, we've talked about King Cotton and its role, but I don't believe that in the 19th century the European demand for dates was all that significant. It seems as though uh, he's saying that Arab organized slavery in East Africa simply was turned around to serve European needs, which 
kind of forgets that it went on for centuries before and that it persisted for centuries afterwards. Uh, I came across a, a source from uh, a historian of the Sudan, uh, Jok Madut Jok. I'm, I'm mispronouncing your name horribly, I'm sure. I, I apologize. But he points out that in the North Sudan, Muslim Arabs use a derogatory term, abade, for South Sudanese. It's a word that means slave. And he's talking about the modern era. In the 1983 civil war, there were nomadic Arab groups still carrying out slave raids in the south. And this is with the tacit approval of the government in Khartoum. So this is something that has persisted long, long after it is no longer serving, uh, you know, imperialist capitalist needs. Uh, you mentioned Niger. Well, in Niger today, there's thousands of young girls taken as fifth wives. So you're allowed four wives as a Muslim. Well, if you take a young girl as basically a slave, a sex slave, they're called fifth wives in colloquial. And there are still West African boys from Ghana and other countries nearby who are taken off to work in the cocoa industry, and they're basically slaves too. Uh, even Time Magazine, I mean, if they're aware of it, it it's even huge. They estimate that 650,000 people have crossed the Sahara Desert in the last five years. I mean, this was 2018, I think. So they're talking in the 20 teens. Uh, 650,000 crossed the Sahara Desert, going north, looking for a better life, maybe a, a route to uh, migrating to Europe, but thousands of them have been sold into slavery in North Africa. And there are video, I'm not recommending you watch these videos, but there are videos of slave markets in Libya from 2018. So, uh, well, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait for my turn. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the issues, uh, armed conflict, uh, states sponsored, uh, forced labor, forced marriages, the 2018 Global Slavery Index estimates nine, over 9 million Africans living in servitude now. And then you have certain African countries being censured by the African Union for not doing enough to eliminate slavery. I think Mauritania was the last country in the world to uh, make slavery illegal, and apparently they're not enforcing it all that strictly. So if the slavery patterns are continuing, uh, all right, go ahead. All right, Your Honor, I'd like a redirect. Um, so first of all, Libya uh, did not have slavery or slave markets until Gaddafi was overthrown in mm -hmm. uh, 2011 or whatever, 2011, I think, 20. Okay. Uh, so, and now Qaddafi was overthrown by a coalition of U.S., France, uh, etc., mainly the U.S. And that was, I mean, ironically, that was sold as a humanitarian intervention. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it's like you, you were saying it think slavery has gone on after uh, its value to imperialism was no longer present. And I would say its value to imperialism continues to be uh, present. So, and, and if, um, 
you know, so the idea that it's like a cultural practice of Africa or something, I think. No, no, is... no, no. Okay. The, okay. the point would be that a number of these Africans who are forced into slavery, actually, I, I, I skipped some of the places that they end up. Um, Italy, where a ridiculous number of the women forced into prostitution are, mm -hmm. you know, of African origin. There's the uh, sex trade dominated by Russians, and you know the the victims are f far more than Africans. Mm -hmm. It's just stunning that Africa is still yeah. the, the target yeah. to a ridiculous degree. Right, right, and I think um, I do think it has to do with our. Um, the kind of imperialism that we will, you know, talk about both in theory and, and specifics because so my point might be a small one, but I find it uh, dangerous to suggest that Arab slavery in the East of Africa was uh, kinder or nicer than the Western version. And that, you know, it ended up serving the Westerners anyway, they encouraged it to continue because it served their ends. Yeah, I mean, I, I get. Yeah, this is this is what we're debating because I think that that is the that's the the important point is that this all ended up uh, with the West taking over, and so it's it's sort of like that's what we have to explain here, right? If if the if the Arabs were benefiting and empowering themselves through this trade, then wouldn't they be, <laughs> you know, wouldn't they have a chunk of Africa in the scramble at least? No. Uh, so yeah. what, what happens is when the European colonialists come in and they discover that these African slave traders have traveled all over the place on slave raids or, or, you know, gathering slaves, that means that they're in a position to know the geography much better. It's, it's the uh, other side of the coin of the, exploration of Africa. So you're going to rely on these middlemen. The fact that they're engaged in the slave trade may be mildly distasteful, or it might be something that you will happily ignore, but it's not the main. Yeah. yeah. It's not the main goal to me. But, this is like the Americans relying on former Nazis to identify communists oh, yeah. occupied <laughs> Germany after world war two. Stay tuned for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. But it's also um, it's also that when they when they decide that it's time to go for a direct colonization, suddenly they discover how awful the slave trade is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so just uh, I wanted to conclude with just uh, a few um, notes that Rodney makes, citing uh, some kind of development researcher named Josué de Castro. And Josue de Castro is studying like the agricultural implications. So the, the point Rodney's trying to make is that um, colonial, like colonialism, is not uplifting Africans. So that's like that's what they're portraying. They're portraying, as you'll see, uh, when we talk about the specifics and the, the portrayals and the pretext and everything. They'll say, you know, these poor people are living in barbarism and they're naked and they're starving, and we have to uh, take over and, and colonize them to to lift them out of this. Um, so here are some notes that uh, Josue de Castro makes um, that Rodney qu 
quotes. One, primitive Africans had no dietary deficiencies. Uh, There's no tooth decay in Kenya. They don't have deformed dental arches until colonialism. In in Egypt, peasants had periodic famines, but not um, chronic hunger. And they had a more diverse diet, including legumes and fruits, which they lost after colonialism. Um, The shortage of calories and protein uh, known as kwashiorkor, which is not a deficiency that you see very often, but you do see it uh, whenever the Africans' contact with the European was prolonged. Um, in the Gambia, uh, varieties there were more varieties of food in pre-colonial times and considerable amounts of meat that were consumed. In equatorial Africa, there are a range of dietary deficiencies that are introduced as people uh, come to become forced laborers for colonizing powers, including scurvy. Um, In South Africa, they had a diet of meat and cereal and switched to what was called mealy meal, uh, just corn. Um, They had a deficiency called pellagra, and it led to skin conditions as well, including something called rough skin. Um, Basuto land had no malnutrition. After colonialism, they had scurvy, pellagra, and leprosy. Um, And there are people who are still, uh, quote unquote, primitive. Um, And Rodney says their physique is generally so superb, their resistance and endurance so great that they have become the objects of scientific research to discover why they do so much better than the well-fed capitalists who are collapsing from heart disease. Mm. So all of this basically amounts to, um, you know, don't, don't believe the idea that humanitarian imperialism rescued starving uh, Africans from from famine. I can agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs>